the show where we don't just report on fringe science, spirituality, and claims of the paranormal. No, 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 no. We take part ourselves. Yep. When they make the claims, we show up so you don't have to. I'm Ross Blotcher. I'm Carrie Poppy. And today we have two very special guests. Yes. I'm very excited about both of them. Yes. Our first guest will be Claire Knowlton. Yes. My best friend since high school. And you may remember Claire from a few years ago. We did an investigation into ex-gay therapy, anti-trans therapies. Is it the Living Waters Ministry? Yeah, yeah, which was uh, an an evangelical arm of anti-queer ministry. And Claire is also a director of consulting for nonprofit groups. Uh, Yeah, that's right. And she also grew up in an environment where vaccines weren't embraced. So she's getting her first vaccine ever the COVID-19 vaccine this spring. Ever. She's never had a vaccine before. That's right. And she's nervous, you know, so we wanted to talk to her and give her an opportunity to share that experience with people, our listeners who might have friends who are vaccine hesitant and kind of don't know how to speak to them because Claire is in this really important group where she is, she really is listening. She Mm -hmm. wants to take the vaccine. She wants to feel safe and good about it. She's not in the camp of people who are sort of dedicated to figuring out why not to take the vaccine, right? She wants to be talked into this. But she has some legitimate questions. Yeah, exactly. So we said, we know just the guy for you. So we'll tell you more about our second guest partway through this episode. But we we have a pretty exciting person to help uh, quell her fears. Someone who knows a lot more about the topic than both of us combined. Speak and then some. <laughs> okay, I will speak for my... <laughs> you could put five Rosses together and... Those Rosses would not know as much as this guest. But also, I think something that we're hoping for this episode is that it's something that you might be able to share with anybody in your life who does have those kind of questions and just wants to understand more, but is convincible. Hopefully, hearing someone like Claire and someone like our second guest can help allay some of those concerns and answer some of those legitimate questions. And maybe it's you. Maybe you're nervous. That's okay. Yeah, absolutely. We're so glad you're here. So here's our conversation with Claire Knowlton. Claire, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I know that you are an audience favorite. The last time that you were on, people were like, have her back. Have her talk more about how bad ex-gay therapy is. <laughs> and five years later, here we are to is answer that, true? that very, very request. I don't know. Oh, okay. It's probably true. And I'm just hung up on the whole idea of a Claire audience. Uh-huh. That we have a, a groundswell of support out there for Claire. So we're glad to have you back and for a very timely discussion. So Claire, people are getting vaccines right now for COVID-19. How many vaccines have you had? I have had zero vaccines. And you're wow. 38? I am 38. I never had like the childhood round of vaccines like Measles, mumps, yeah. rubella, like n- none of those. Made it through college, even studying abroad without getting the, you know, the one uh, meningitis, without oh, getting yeah. the meningitis vaccine. Never had a flu shot. So yes, 
This will be okay. it will be my very first vaccine. Always good to meet another member of the 38 Club. And I, I have had many vaccines. So in our society, this raises questions. What was the reason why you didn't have vaccines? Because it seems like you do have to kind of go out of your way not to be vaccinated. Uh, so maybe you can talk about sort of the decision making and how passive versus active you've had to be in order to get to this point. Well, I mean, the first thing I would say is like, I'm definitely from a family that does not engage with the Western medical system. Hmm. So we never had health insurance growing up, didn't have any like primary care doctors. I think I can count the number of times I've ever had antibiotics in my entire life on one hand. Wow. Mm. I could probably name each of the, each of those times. Like one was when I got my wisdom teeth taken out. Okay. Like oh, wow. Once was Glad in you got first it. grade when I had strep throat. That's like one of the very few times I actually went to see like a real medical doctor. Mm. And in those situations, did you just say, okay, this is one of those situations where I need that? Or did you have a lot of questions then and and want to have those specialists kind of assure you and, and guide you through the process? No, I think like my parents' orientation has always been Western medicine is there for severe things, right? Mm -hmm. So like, you break an arm. I broke my wrist once. Went <laughs> oh, to the yeah. hospital, right? Mm-hmm. Like got that set, you know. And outside of a really kind of extreme situation, then folk remedies and homeopathy and caring for your body through good food and like telling your body to take care of itself and being responsive to kind of what your body's telling you it needs that like, that is the way to heal, right? That, mm-hmm. that the body has this incredible ability to heal itself. Like for me, that actually is, it is like going out of your way to mm-hmm. try and get this kind of medical care. Right. And I, I have had health insurance since 2013 now. So like, you know, not till I was an adult and like working in a particular career did I ever have health insurance. And I have used that insurance twice. Wow. One time I, I was sick and it had gone beyond three days, which like, I was like, whoa, that's, that's crazy to be Mm, sick for three days and Mm. be like feeling really bad. So I called the nurse line that's like connected to my health insurance. Mm -hmm. They told me that most people get sick for one to two weeks. And so that was like uh-huh. a total shock to me. And they're like, no, no, that's, that's normal. And <laughs> you can get this decongestant. You can take like a fever reducer. But no, like it sounds like you have a virus and to be feeling cruddy for three days, that's, that's kind of a normal course of things. So <laughs> used it for that. And then I just used it a couple days ago. I went to get an antibody test for COVID because I've just been really curious. Like I work from home. We've been really careful. I go grocery shopping once every two weeks. And that's like the only time I leave the house. So the last year has really been like, it's almost as if I've been quarantined (laughs) because I only, I only leave the house like every two weeks. But yeah, so I was just curious whether I had been asymptomatic and gotten it. So I got a blood draw, got my test. It doesn't doesn't seem like I've been exposed. Oh, okay. You did get a result already. So yeah, it was like within a day. So I'm curious then, I know that you haven't had vaccines, 
But you mentioned a blood draw. Did you get your blood taken for your homeopathic, naturopathic doctors as a kid? Or is or have, can you count on one hand the number of needles that have been in your skin? Well, I couldn't count on one hand the number of needles that have been in my skin. Because acupuncture. I acupuncture. Ah, acupuncture. Uh-huh. You know what? She's got us both beat, Ross. Oh, and, I bet. No, I did acupuncture I for like maybe <laughs> a year and a half for carpal tunnel. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. We'll try not to go down that carpal tunnel. Uh, in That's a long time to leave the needle in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you might need antibiotics again. <laughs> I'm just going to walk away with my understanding of acupuncture. One of the reasons we really wanted to talk to you, Claire, besides you being a delight, is that so much of the conversations around vaccines right now are bifurcated into this idea of there are people who are just 100% pro-vax, they're so ready to get this, and then there are the people who think that vaccines are 5G lizard blood and are going to kill you, (laughs) and ne'er the twin shall meet, there's nobody in the middle, when in actuality, a huge chunk of the population is in the middle, right? I was looking at the data on this, and in December 2020, about 40% of Americans were saying, I'm going to wait and see whether I'm going to get the COVID vaccine. December 2020, we're now in April 2021, and there's about 17% who are in that, mm. that wait and see category. So that's where all the action is, and such a sort of forgotten segment of the population. Is that where you think you would have placed yourself, that wait and see, maybe a year ago? Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. And do you think the the label vaccine hesitant would be an accurate descriptor? Like, you know, you're open to hearing about it, but there's a hesitation there. Yeah, I think that's fair. You know, it feels like there's certainly an opportunity for more information to come in, right? Mm -hmm. Kind of like the longer you wait, the -hmm. more information you have about effects and how long term they are. And I mean, even just like, how long does immunity last from right. these vaccines? Like, we don't know, right? There's a lot that we don't know. And There's the kind of an happens. early adopter scenario where some people kind of jump into the fray or involved with early experimental trials, and then that helps build this body of knowledge. So you're saying, you know, a little bit of the food taster effect there, kind of, well, let's let everybody gather the data on these intrepid folks, and then we can weigh our options. Oh, sure. And I think, like, there's there's a long list of things that science has told us are safe, Mm -hmm. that later we learn, oh, no, actually, they weren't safe. Actually, there was this other thing that happened that, you know, we didn't, Mm. we didn't expect. Mm -hmm. I was just reading an article this morning about like DDT, Mm. and the the long lasting effect of DDT. This study has studied now three generations, starting with a group of moms that were exposed to DDT while they were pregnant, and then their daughters, and now their granddaughters. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And they're still seeing effects. And not to say that like this vaccine is like DDT, but just to say like there's There's um, precedent. I I think you can be science literate and also still be able to say like, yeah, there's more information to learn. And then it's a question of kind of your risk assessment, right? Mm -hmm. So trade-offs. When is there enough information? Like when is information enough? And how dangerous do you perceive COVID-19 to be to yourself? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to broader society, right? Yeah. I know that intellectually, you've you've made that analysis, you've decided you want to get the vaccine. But having grown up in an environment where vaccines were not embraced and and having rational concerns, where are you at emotionally in preparing for getting the vaccine? 
super scared. Yeah. Yeah, I believe it. I mean, I've gotten vaccines since I was a little kid. So there's there's just a familiarity there, a familiarity bias even, right? That makes it so much easier. Oh, I see you kind of tearing up now. Yeah. And like, and I, but when I think about like, what if I had never had someone put something in my body that tells my body what to do? That would be scary. I get why it's scary. Oh, um, we keep referring to being children. You know, I got vaccinated as a child. And, and so much of this does come down from our parents and their attitudes and behaviors. And really, when you're a kid, you don't have any decision making about any of this unless you choose to like kick up a fit or something like that. And I'm getting the sense, Claire, that, that over time, your own attitudes have sort of evolved and changed from that which was taught to you by your parents. Can you maybe sort of speak to that journey and just how, how you view science in general? Sorry, I'm collecting myself. No, (laughs) collect away. Absolutely. I mean, I definitely wouldn't describe, I wouldn't describe my family as scientifically illiterate. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I have members of my family who work in the medical field and Mm -hmm. don't want vaccines for themselves or for their kids you know, definitely I have a a family who is curious and engaged with science, right? So like, I've seen these people for 20 plus years now, that is true. (laughs) (laughs) So I wouldn't say that like, my, my approach to science has sort of changed, if you will. I think I was definitely like, raised of members of my family who like, put some of the first vehicles on the moon. (laughs) I have, you know, there's like, Definitely. uh, Science holds a a really high esteemed position. Yes. And I think that embrace of science does not exclude other ways of knowing, right? Mm -hmm. And there's an appreciation Mm -hmm. for the mysteries that remain in the world that may or may not ever be answered by science. There's an appreciation for intuition for spirituality, ways of being in the world that are about deep listening and intuition and not about numbers and data, right? Like both of those, all of those things are kind of contained within my family and my extended family and the ways in which they, you know, interact with the world. And I would say that that is like true for me also. Where you'll still kind of look at the sum total and say, well, I need a little bit of balance. I need a bit of the spiritual alongside the scientific. And I, I need them both, but in measure, it sounds like. Yeah, that they like, they don't have to, they don't have to live in opposition to one another. Sometimes like science and the scientific method and that kind of extreme rigor and use of data, mm-hmm. like that is what is needed in certain places to answer certain questions and then other times like that is not what's needed Mm. you know what's needed is compassion or quiet or Mm -hmm. sitting under trees Mm -hmm. or looking at clouds or you know whatever it happens to be like creating art there are limits to all of our different ways of knowing and there are benefits to all of our different ways of knowing and we kind of do a disservice to ourselves and to each other if we only allow for 
one particular way of approaching the world or viewing the world. I noticed you use the phrase Western medicine. Do you still kind of see medicine as living on an East-West divide? I mean, that's certainly how it's been set up in our society, mm. right? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, that's a phrase everyone will recognize, you know, and they immediately call to mind, ah, Western science, lab coats and Erlenmeyer flasks and dropper tubes. I was thinking of Erlenmeyer flasks, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but like, um, you know, even with the idea of vaccination or inoculation, I read that book, The Panic Virus, some years ago, and I'm forgetting who the author is. Maybe Google will tell us and you can like <laughs> put that in here. But a, a journalist who wrote a book about vaccines and vaccine skeptics. It was Seth Mnookin. Awesome. Yes. So I read that book <laughs> uh, quite a few years ago now. And he talked about the history of inoculations and I'll, I'll probably get the exact dates and details here wrong, but I recall from that book that some hundreds or thousands of years ago in India, there were healers that would take scabs off people who had had smallpox, would grind them up, you know, which are basically like white blood cells, right, mm -hmm. that have combated this virus, would, would grind them up, you know, turn them into some sort of a paste or whatever, and would pinprick other people with those ground up <laughs> <laughs> those ground up scabs Ooh, trial um, and error right and like that was Brilliant. you know that was a, a way of protecting yeah. people and i and i would say like it's more than trial and error i would say like it's observation right mm -hmm. oh look these people who got these scabs and lived through this illness like maybe there's something valuable about their their body healing themselves that we can put into other people to help right. their bodies heal themselves right i think some of that east west divide is a little bit forced mm -hmm. but i definitely see yeah if you question that boundary you can easily find counterexamples to any rubric you would create to separate east and west yeah. yeah, but I definitely think that there's value in starting with sort of like, what's the minimum effective dose, you know, mm -hmm. and you can think of that kind mm -hmm. of along a, a spectrum of like, I have a sore throat, so I'm going to drink some hot water with lemon and honey, or I'm going to gargle with salt with hot, like with warm salt water. I'm going to see how I feel tomorrow. Right? Mm -hmm. So what would you say kind of worked, if you will, what made you feel like, oh, okay, I think this is something I can do. And then where is there still fear? What would you like to hear from our expert that might reassure you about this process? I think what is what is compelling me to get the vaccine is a feeling of responsibility to my fellow humans. Mm -hmm. It's much more about wanting to make sure that like, I am not a vector, mm -hmm. like, you know, a sort of an unknown vector that's spreading a disease that could kill other people. Mm -hmm. For me personally, like I'm much less worried about my own health. And I think like where a lot of the fear comes from is I feel like my body works really well. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And, and it's always worked really well for me. And mm -hmm. I've, you know, been very cautious about what I put into my body. And yeah. so I don't want to like mess that up. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely makes sense. Well, I know that you have a few specific questions around just sort of the the ways the information has been communicated, the safety of the vaccine and what we know about it. 
those those questions seem to be more in the sort of hard science area. Is is that right? That it's just sort of like there there are things about the way the vaccine has been described that just still feel unclear to you? Yeah, yeah, I think that's um, that's exactly right. <laughs> okay, okay, cool. Well, <laughs> we'll have we'll have uh, an expert on to hopefully answer your questions and hopefully at least make this an easier process. I know that we'll never get to zero percent, and that's okay. Zero uh, percent fear, but what's your fear level at now out of ten? Hmm. I don't know. Kind of, um, yeah, kind of, it kind of like comes in different waves. Mm, depending on how you look at you, maybe get different numbers. Yeah. Like I wasn't very scared or anxious until I set an appointment mm. and then, yeah. and then I was really surprised. It became too. real and yeah. you were surprised at your own reaction. Yeah, I mean, I'm surprised I'm crying right now. I'm <laughs> surprised that I was like crying after I set that appointment. I was oh, surprised yeah. that I haven't been able to sleep. Oh, yeah, yeah, those are well, those are all things like really, uh, really catching me off guard. Yeah. Well, thank thank you for being so willing to be vulnerable and share this with us. Yeah, it means a lot. There are absolutely. I have no doubt there are people listening who are like, oh my God, thank God they're talking to this woman because this is how I feel. We were planning to record today and, and even earlier, you had had an appointment before that you called off and it sounded like you had had other people in your life who were maybe pushing you a little beyond your comfort zone. Are you willing to talk about that a bit? The role others have played in this decision making and, and how comfortable you are or are not with input from others? Yeah, I mean, I've been getting like a lot of a lot of texts, a lot of emails, you know, things coming up in different phone calls where people really want me to like go to a random site where there's suddenly 500 doses and go get the vaccine right now. Act now, now, now. Yeah. And <laughs> supplies are limited. <laughs> yeah. And like they've been really dissatisfied with my answer of, well, I'm going to be eligible on April 15th for the state of California. I don't fall into any of these other boxes. I'm going to be eligible on April 15th and I'm going to wait until I'm eligible and I'm going to get it through Kaiser because like that's my healthcare provider, right? Mm -hmm. They're close to my house. <laughs> yeah, that has been that has been like an unsatisfactory answer to other people and been getting this like you're doing it wrong response, right? Like, well, if you haven't gotten the vaccine yet, you're doing it wrong. Mm -hmm. And we're talking you about know. a matter of like days. This is a difference of you <laughs> signing up today versus having gotten it yesterday. Right, okay. right, right. Got it. Do you have an idea at this point which vaccine you would want out of the available ones? Yeah, so this is, I think gets to some of my questions so I don't know if this is true, um, and this is one of the things I want to ask him. One of the things that I have heard is that the reason other coronavirus vaccines in the past never made it past the trials is that they created an overly strong immune reaction to coronavirus some years later. So it would seem to work in the short term. Mm. And then long term, as the as the studies continued, they found that people would have like a really strong reaction and get like more sick than they would expect them to get. And that's why they never made it out of the trials. So I don't know if that's true. 
If that is true, Hmm. it would then sort of imply that the Johnson and Johnson vaccine is not the one to get because that's using like that older technology. Mm -hmm. Hmm. But then both Moderna and Pfizer BioNTech are using a technology that has not previously been approved in other vaccines. So it's been tested in other vaccines, but like Mm -hmm. hasn't ever made it to an approved vaccine. And that's the, you know, the messenger mRNA technology Mm -hmm. rather than having some sort of like a a neutered virus, if you will, as as the thing that tells your cells to react. This Mm -hmm. is mRNA telling your cells to react. But that's like, it's pretty new technology, you know, even though it's like 50 years in development, uh-huh. and we're able to have a vaccine as quickly as, as we are. Uh, it's, it's still like unproven long-term, you know, what happens in three years, what happens in five years. So at least in the short term, you can see that tens of millions, now hundreds of millions of people have been vaccinated and there's no immediate right. huge level of harm, if any. But you're looking at longitudinally what's going to happen over time. And clearly, you've read up on this. How much time have you spent educating yourself on this? Because it sounds like you've got some handling of the facts. I would say I have not spent a lot of time. Okay. So I have, I've certainly been tracking it through the news. And um, I've read a lot on the CDC website. Mm -hmm. But I have a lot of questions that... I don't know how to find the answers to because like here's the issue, right? The reliable sources of information are going to be medical journals that like I don't have the foundational understanding to be able to read and understand, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. That's going to be like the reliable stuff. And then everything else on the internet feels like it's going to be a crapshoot, right? Mm. So I'll do a Google search. And then what am I going to come up with? You know, who knows? So I have not done those Google searches. (laughs) Like I, I, I don't even want to. I mean, it's very easy for me to say, I know that Bill Gates is not tracking people through the vaccines. I know that like there won't be a microchip injected into my arm. I know that there isn't some sort of like 5G connection. Like those things are obviously wrong, right? Okay. But, like, to you. I just raise to you something that I have heard, not from any sort of a science journal, right? Which is that like the reason past coronavirus vaccines weren't approved is because they created this like really strong immunoreaction some years later. I don't know if that's true. And like, I don't want to expose myself to a whole bunch of things that sound like they might be probable, but then aren't based in any sort of reality. And then try and have to like, try and have to research whether any of those things are accurate or inaccurate. So so there's a little bit of um, a source evaluation problem here. If you do that Google search, then all of a sudden you're going to get a bunch of results, but now you have to weigh them and know which ones are reliable and which ones aren't. And I, I think it's almost like there, it, there's, there's almost a step beyond that of what's reliable, what's unreliable. It's like, you know, those people who enter a conversation and they're like, I'm just going to drop this question on the table and walk away and leave it to uh-huh. figure out. Right? right. And like that is so much work to figure out how to answer that question. And so that's what I don't want to expose myself to. Right. Okay. Like I don't want to enter a space in which 
maybe there's question about like the source or whatnot, but the idea that's put forward is reasonable, Mm -hmm. right? The objection that's put forward is reasonable or whatever. And then I have to try and figure out like, well, is that true? How am I going to determine if that is true? Mm -hmm. And then try to find myself like buried in medical journals that again, I don't have the foundational organic chemistry background. I don't have a strong biology background, right? Like I don't have, like I work in finance, (laughs) you know, like (laughs) I don't have that baseline to then intelligently understand and digest the information that that is put in front of me. Yeah, that's interesting, though, that for you, it sounds like you would totally trust the peer-reviewed medical journal and probably not, you know, daveskovidwebsite.com. But uh, <laughs> but like, what about if you saw something in Scientific American or Science Mag or Discovery or one of these outlets that tends to be like pretty good about at least making sure their reporters know what they're talking about? Yeah, I think those would probably be reasonable sources, but I guess I'm worried about like ending up in the internet rabbit hole mm. in like that Googling cycle that <laughs> that leads to much too work on mm. my part and mm-hmm. then leaves me with just, well, there's too many open questions. Yeah, and kind of an analysis paralysis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So many inputs, so many things to weigh, and then you've got all these loose ends floating through your mind, mm-hmm. which is understandable. It also strikes me as very self-aware. I bet that a lot of people have that lingering fear, but maybe wouldn't be able to put their finger on like, oh, it's it's the sense that I will walk into the water and not know which way to go. Like, mm-hmm. I'm just going to be sort of afloat. That strikes me as something a lot of people wouldn't be in touch with. So anyway, you're great. Good job. Oh my gosh. I'm so self-aware. It's just, <laughs> just amazing. Well, and I, I really appreciate that if it was just Claire looking out for Claire, you just wouldn't do it. But what's really bringing you to this decision is a care for others. Yeah, definitely. And it's been nice to have Carrie as my best friend because she can do some of that Googling for me. <laughs> And telling you... Those other friends are being way too pushy. You can cancel your appointment. It's fine. Yeah. Indeed. You mean I don't have to drive across town and like go to a parking lot <laughs> to like get a get a medical procedure? I know it's just a shot in the arm, but like yeah. you, know, you mean I don't have to go to like a strange place with an unknown healthcare provider to like get this thing that I'm already scared about getting? Okay, that's helpful. <laughs> so that you can get it three days earlier. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Indeed. Claire, when is your appointment now? Do you have one now? I don't have one yet. Oh, okay. um, I went on to Kaiser. Here, here's also what's really funny. So that night, Carrie, that we were like texting and I was like really like really angry mm-hmm. that I was going to have to like, I wasn't feeling well. And I'm going to have to drive to this freaking parking lot, like on the other side of town. And I maybe it's at a fire department station. I'm not quite sure. And like, you know, get this shot through this like, healthcare company that I've never interfaced with before like oh I'm really angry about that Uh, and you were like that's okay you can you can cancel and you'll be eligible through Kaiser like very soon so I went ahead and canceled and I hadn't checked my my voice messages yet from that day and I actually had a voicemail from Kaiser that was like our records show that you are now eligible for the vaccine like, okay. So I, I did log in and looked for an appointment, but they didn't seem to have one at the location 
that's really close to me. So I didn't schedule one yet, but I think they have another location that's actually not too far away. So I'll probably go back in and see if I can get one at, at that other location. Okay. Well, tell us when you have your date. I will. Okay, so when we recorded that conversation, we thought Dr. Paul Offit was about to jump on the phone with us, and it turned out, no, no, he had emailed you the day before and said, hey, can we do this an hour earlier? And we had not noticed. Good times. Yep, that's on me. Uh, but but you mentioned Dr. Paul Offit, who, if you don't recognize his name, he is a well-known expert on topics of immunization and virology. He himself is a co-inventor of a rotavirus vaccine. He's also the director of the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital in Philadelphia. And he's a professor of vaccinology at the University of Pennsylvania and an internationally recognized expert in virology and immunology. And he's been a member of the Immunization Advisory Committee for the CDC and the FDA. Damn. Yeah. So you might have seen him on TV, but if you haven't, you're going to see him here or hear him here. That's right. And he's come to join our conversation and answer some of Claire's questions. Claire, if I. <laughs> also, a quick note. I was a dummy dum-dum and forgot to push my XLR cable all the way into the recorder when we were recording this part of the conversation. So I will now become a faint, not quite as good voice, but I'll be back. <laughs> you know how that is. You're trying to push in your XLR cable, and it just doesn't go in all the way. We've all been there. Well, thank you so much for being here, Dr. Offit. My pleasure. And Claire, thank you for joining us again. Absolutely. So, Claire, you're getting the, or you're planning on getting the COVID-19 vaccine pretty soon. It'll be your first vaccine. How are you feeling this morning thinking about it? Uh, I think definitely still, like, quite anxious. Yeah, I bet. So uh, you, I know you have a short list of questions to ask Dr. Offit. Uh, Dr. Offit, you ready to get some vaccine cues? Let her rip. All right. So my first question is, I understand that there have been a lot of attempts over the years to create other coronavirus vaccines that have been unsuccessful. They haven't been approved. And of course, that past work is what has led to us having vaccines so quickly available this time around. But I had heard that one of the reasons that past coronavirus vaccines hadn't been approved was that in later years in the studies, they would cause like really strong immune reactions in folks and they would get like more sick than they theoretically should have. Is that true? Okay, so, so the two previous coronaviruses that had pandemic potential, one was SARS-1, which came around in 2002. Um, the other was MERS, which came around 10 years later. In both cases, there was an interest in making vaccines. And so there was a, there was a fair amount of data that were, was done generating phase one, preclinical, meaning experimental animals, then phase one, phase two. The reason that those vaccines didn't proceed was that the viruses essentially died out. I mean, the, the, the difference between SARS, SARS-1, MERS, and now this virus, SARS-CoV-2, was those first two viruses really didn't cause much asymptomatic infection. I mean, when they, they infected you, they caused more moderate to severe disease. So it's much easier to recognize those viruses, put a moat around them, and stop them. So that's, that's why those research projects um, basically died, because the virus basically died. But you're right. And for SARS-1, there was evidence of something called antibody-dependent enhancement, which is to say, um, when you get in either infected or vaccinated, when you then get the next infection or vaccination, that you actually have worse disease. Dengue is probably the best example of that. So, so, so dengue has four different serotypes, dengue types one, two, three, and four. If you're infected with dengue type one, 
Um, when you're then, if you're then reinfected with dengue type two, you actually have much worse disease than if you'd never been infected before, much worse. That's so-called dengue hemorrhagic shock syndrome, which is as bad as it sounds. So then people feared reasonably could, what, with what happened with SARS-1, which did something similar, at least in preclinical studies and experimental animals, could that also happen here? And it hasn't for a lot of reasons. First of all, it didn't happen in preclinical studies and experimental animals inoculated with SARS, either inoculated with the vaccine and then challenged with the virus or inoculated with the virus and then challenged with the vaccine. Similarly, when you give up um, convalescent plasma to people who have gotten, who are in the midst of uh, being infected, that also didn't cause it. So for whatever reason, SARS-1 was not predictive of SARS-2. So the antibody-dependent hands, I actually wrote something up for the NIH that they, uh, a white paper that they ultimately put out, but and I'm happy to send it to you. But there, there's about five reasons for why it is that th there's now abundant evidence that this did not happen with SARS-2. So I could understand sort of the feeling um, about the uh, what had happened with SARS-1, but that's that hasn't uh, extended to this virus. Okay, so let me um, let me repeat back and make sure I'm following the information that you just shared. So with previous coronaviruses, yes, there was indication that another infection would create like a heightened immune response, but we haven't seen that with this current coronavirus. Did I, did I like summarize that accurately? Right. For, for, for which we have abundant evidence, both preclinical, so phase one, phase two, now phase three data, now the vaccine is out there. There's, it, it didn't happen with this virus. Okay. And so do you feel like enough time has passed, like since this virus was only identified, you know, less than a year and a half ago, does that feel like a time frame that kind of matches up with what you've seen with like previous coronaviruses and having kind of a, a heightened immune response? In other words, that would happen within like an 18 month time period. Right. So here's what I, here's how I would summarize this vaccine. So this is a, a, um, a virus which was just sequenced in January of 2020. So we, we only knew about its sequence a, a little, little more than a year ago. We know the protein we're interested in. It's the spike protein, the protein that emanates from the surface of the virus. That's the protein that attaches virus to cells. So if you can prevent the virus from attaching to cells, you can prevent the virus from infecting cells or said another way, prevent the virus from infecting you. So all the strategies here are trying to get you to make antibodies against SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. But it's a different, it's a difficult and elusive virus. I mean, when it came out of China, I think people build it as a winter respiratory virus or flu-like, causes pneumonia, kills you, but that's it. It's not that. It does many more things than that. Uh, it, it, uh, it causes the most awful thing it does is it causes vasculitis, meaning inflammation of your blood vessels. It causes you to make an immune response against your own blood vessels. And, and so therefore, because every organ system in your body has a blood supply, every organ system can be affected. This, this in children, I was on service a couple weeks ago. That's what we see. It's called MIST-C, this multi-system inflammatory disease of children where a child has a trivial infection, often just picked up incidentally. Um, you know, somebody in the family got sick, so they get a PCR test, it's positive, and they, they have no symptoms. Then they come back a month later to our hospital. They are no longer PCR positive. They're antibody positive, but they have, have high fever and they have evidence of heart, liver, lung, and kidney damage, which will no doubt cause long-term problems, at least in, in a subset of these kids. It's like Kawasaki's disease, which can cause permanent heart disease. I think that's what's going to be happening here. So this is not your typical winter respiratory virus. It's been found to change, you know, uh, lessen your sense of taste and smell. It's been found by neuropathologists in your brain. I mean, what? Respiratory viruses do this. It's just an unusual virus. 
And so it's an unusual virus that's now being met with a, as you said, a vaccine strategy with which we have no commercial experience. There is no mRNA vaccine. So I think what, what uh, initially, I'm, an, I'm on the FDA's vaccine advisory committee. So initially we were charged with the notion, if you, if you have a vaccine, it's 50% effective with a so-called lower bound of 30%, we, we would have approved that vaccine under emergency use authorization. Dr. Fauci last summer said that he was hopeful the vaccine could be 70% effective. It's 95% effective. I mean, it is, it is remarkable to me that we have a vaccine that is it's not only 95% effective against all manner of illness, mild, moderate, or severe, but it's also effective to some extent against asymptomatic shedding, meaning just infection without symptoms. It's effective as effective in people over 65, people like me. It's as effective in, in people who have a variety of comorbidities which put them at risk, you know, diabetes, heart disease, obesity, et cetera. Um, it's effective against all racial and ethnic groups. Still, even if, if people had said to me then, so you, you had Moderna was a 30,000 person trial, which meant 15,000 people got the vaccine. Pfizer was a 44,000 person trial, meaning 22,000 people got the vaccine. If people had said to me then, yeah, I know this, I get that it's like 95% effective. I wanna make sure these vaccines don't have a rare side effect. I wanna wait until a few million doses are out there. I think I would have said, I get that. I would have, even though it was obviously recommended or clearly recommended by the CDC. I think that's a reasonable thing to say. So this vaccine, there's like 160 million doses out there. It doesn't cause a rare side effect. So then people will say, as you said, well, how do you know in the long term? Which is always sort of what people say. How do you know it's not going to be a problem 5, 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 years later? Any serious problem that has been associated with the vaccine historically has been found within within six weeks of a dose. There is not any terrible side effect that has been associated with the vaccine that has not been evident within six weeks. Now, it may have been for, so for rare. Any, like for any vaccine, or are you talking right, about- I'll, I'll go through them for you. The um, smallpox vaccine could cause essentially a mild form of smallpox. But again, that was evident very quickly. The oral polio vaccine, Albert Sabin's oral polio vaccines, which was introduced in the, in the early 1960s, could itself cause polio. I mean- we eliminated polio from this country by the late 70s, but every year, eight to 10 children would get polio from the polio vaccine. It was about one per 2.4 million doses. It was extremely rare, but it was real. The, the squalene adjuvanted flu vaccine that was used in Europe to you know, prevent the flu pandemic, the 2009 flu pandemic, could itself cause narcolepsy, which is a permanent disorder of wakefulness. And about one per 55,000 people, again, this was evident within a couple of weeks of getting the vaccine. Um, the yellow fever vaccine, which is recommended for countries uh, traveling to countries that have yellow fever, could cause something called viscerotropic disease, which was a nice way of saying yellow fever. In other words, that the yellow fever vaccine could cause yellow fever at about one per 2.5 million doses. The flu vaccine is a rare cause of something called Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is an ascending paralysis um, that can be uh, terrible. It can affect your muscles and respiration in roughly one per million people. Now, flu does that too. Wild type natural flu virus does that too at about 17 times that rate. But that too, uh, that all occurs within a few weeks of a dose. The Rota Shield vaccine, which was on the market for a year in the late 1990s, was a cause of intestinal blockage called intussusception, all within two weeks of a dose. And that's true here and now. You're seeing this with Johnson Johnson's vaccine, um, causing this so-called uh, cerebral venous sinus thrombosis in roughly one per million recipients, all within two to three weeks of a dose. So I think when you wait, as, as was re recommended by the FDA, at least two months after the last dose, you're going to pick up something that happens at least in, in thousands of people. But again, you don't know till it's in, in millions of people. And so now we're learning about this so-called CBST with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Okay, and so, so in summary, like the history of vaccines shows us 
long-term effects are, they tend not to be there. Or, or rather, if there are long-term effects, they happen very quickly within a few weeks. And so- That's the better way of saying it. That, that's the best way of saying it. They can be long-term, but they have, but you'll see them immediately. So you quickly. wouldn't expect to see like from any vaccine, something that shows up in a population of folks who have been vaccinated three years later or That's five right. years later. That's right. I know of no example of that. And I'm, I'm happy to have somebody tell me an example of that, but I don't know of any example of that. That's Got been it. proven. Okay. So then with, with both Pfizer and Moderna, you know, we're using like this new technology of messenger mRNA, which I know has been under development for 50 years, but hasn't been like in a widely produced distributed vaccine. So I would love to hear about like how the mRNA knows like when to stop telling your cells to produce the spike protein. Like, as I understand it, you get this injection with the mRNA, tells your cells like produce this spike protein that then your immune system goes, ah, that's bad. And then when it encounters sort of COVID in the wild, it's like, oh, there's that spike protein. That's bad. Kill that. So can you just talk about why the mRNA wouldn't continue telling your cells over a long period of time, like keep making this spike protein and then your immune system keep being like, oh no, fight that and and feel sick. (laughs) I've never heard anybody anthropomorphize mRNA, but I like the way that's. So so each cell of your body has about 200,000 copies of messenger RNA in it. That messenger RNA then is translated to a protein or an enzyme that helps your cell survive. So you, you all, we all have messenger RNA in our, in our bodies. This is no different than that, except that it's gonna code for the coronavirus spike protein. And like all messenger RNA, it will make that protein for a few days and then, then break down. I mean, messenger RNA is actually a very labile molecule. So it just breaks down. So it doesn't matter if, if you don't have an immune system, if you're born with severe combined immune deficiency disease and you have no capacity to make an immune response, it still will stop making that protein after a few days because it's, it's a labile molecule. So I guess that's kind of why we need a second shot for both of those vaccines. The, the main reason for a second shot, you, you get a certain level of neutralizing antibodies with the first shot. With the second shot, you get actually about a tenfold higher. You get a boost. It's a booster dose. So it's, it's just, you, you, it, I would have been perfectly capable of believing one dose would have been enough. But in the phase one studies, they looked at one dose versus two doses. And with that second dose, you get a boost response. And also you get uh, much better cellular immunity with that second dose, which presages one, long-term immunity and two, better uh, better immunity against the variants. I'll tell you something. I've had a lot of vaccines in my life. I couldn't wait to get this vaccine. I was never happier than to have this vaccine. I mean, think about it. One out of every 500 Americans has died of this virus. It's, and what scared me the most was actually not dying, although dying does scare me. I think what scared me the most was that uh, I would have one of these long-term effects. You know, they saw long haulers. I mean, get a vaccine, good Lord, because here's your choices, natural infection or vaccination. Because this virus isn't going away. It's a mucosal virus. It's, it's, uh, it's not like measles. We're not going to eliminate this virus. It's going to be with us for a long time. So those are your two choices. Eventually, everyone will be infected or, or immunized in this country. It's that contagious and, and, and that easily spread because it's spread asymptomatic. So Dr. Offit, to your last point of like, you're either going to get vaccinated or you're going to get infected. I keep hearing on the news that like, even if you've had COVID, even if you have the antibodies from sort of encountering it in the wild, you should still get vaccinated. And so I would love to hear more about like, why we think the vaccine offers better protection or different protection 
than your own, than the antibodies that you produced from encountering the virus in the wild. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't know that, that uh, I, I agree with you. I think that's what's being said, but it may well be that natural infection induces uh, protection for several years. I think that's perfectly possible. I mean, when, you know, Shane Crotty at uh, La Jolla has done studies looking at people who are naturally infected. And then he looks at their antibody responses and they're also so-called cellular responses like, you know, the memory B cells, memory T cells over time and finds that while antibody responses wane, those memory cells still appear to be long-lived. That's a really good sign because the incubation period of this disease, meaning the time from when you're exposed to the time when you get sick is about six days. That's really enough time for activation and differentiation of memory cells to become antibody producing cells. So he predicted, and I think correctly, that even though antibody responses may wane, you're probably still protected. I think there's sort of programmatically, the CDC thought, you know, if we just say that um, everybody who's been naturally infected doesn't need to get vaccinated, now you're sort of adding a layer of having to get antibody titers on everybody before you give a vaccine, which I just think was difficult. I, I would say this, though. I don't think the data could be clear that people who've been naturally infected that then get one dose of an MR-containing vaccine get the same response they would if they'd gotten that second dose. So I think you could reasonably say if you've gotten naturally infected, you really probably only need one dose of the mRNA vaccine. The CDC hasn't stepped forward to make that recommendation, but there are three studies now that I think prove that point. Okay. So one thing that I've heard a few times from uh, people who are hesitant about getting the vaccine is that it it's sort of a blueprint. It doesn't just go in there and briefly tell your cells what to do. It goes into your DNA and sort of like refigures the way your DNA operates. Uh, I see you smiling and rubbing your eyes. Can't <laughs> wait to answer this question for the 400th time. Does <laughs> it? it? That's all. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, does it, does it alter your DNA? Right. So, so um, and I can sort of understand the fear. It's our first genetic vaccine. I mean, normally, if you want to give it, get, induce an immune response against SARS-CoV-2 spike protein, you give the protein you know, the protein, purified protein itself, which is the way we make the hepatitis B vaccine or the human papillomavirus vaccine, or you give a whole killed form of the virus, which was another way of presenting the protein, like we make the inactivated polio vaccine or the rabies vaccine or the hepatitis A vaccine, or you give a live weakened form of the virus, all of which are, are the, the, like measles, mumps, German measles, chickenpox. So that's the way, the way you make those vaccines. In, in each case, you're giving the protein and then the person makes the immune response to the protein. That's not true here. You're giving the gene that codes for the protein your body makes the coronavirus spike protein, then your body makes antibodies to the spike protein. So the, the, the use of the term gene or genetic all, always scares people, right? Because they think, oh my God, it's gonna alter my genes. Here's why that can't happen. And I'm not saying that the chances are small. I'm saying the chances are zero. And here's why. When you get messenger RNA and it enters your cytoplasm, the DNA is in the nucleus. So in order for the mRNA to get into the nucleus, it has to cross the nuclear membrane which requires a nuclear access signal, which this doesn't have. Even if it was to cross the nuclear cell membrane, which can't, it would, it's, it's RNA, it's not DNA. So it has to be reversed, transcribed, if you will, to DNA, which requires the enzyme reverse transcriptase, which it also doesn't have. If it was reverse transcribed to DNA, which it can't be because it can't get into the nucleus, doesn't have the enzyme that allows it to do that, it still would have to be integrated into DNA, which requires an enzyme called integrase, which it also doesn't have. Honestly, your chance is better of, of becoming Spider-Man after you've gotten this vaccine <laughs> than if you uh, than of changing it. And but remember, just so we never leave the science, you become Spider-Man when you're bitten by a radioactive spider. Okay? <laughs> 
Claire looks pretty excited about being Spider-Man. I just heard that I can become Spider-Man. That's what I'm talking away with. And this is the difficulty of science communication. <laughs> That's interesting. So it sounds to me almost like the vaccine, to use sort of uh, military or government language, it doesn't have the clearance to enter mm. your DNA. It's not That's that. That's better than my Spider-Man analogy. Yeah, because if people think you're going to get, you're going to come. Oh, those Spider-Man, you know, he had a reasonable life. Yeah. I don't understand why people think when your DNA is altered, it's always for the bad. Why can't you, you know, <laughs> give you x-ray vision or something more fun? Get a job as a photographer, yeah. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, everybody. Yeah, stop. This all, stop it. I know this is really important, but equally important, maybe more important, <laughs> maybe is the kind of toothbrush you use. That's you know right. what I mean? I think we have a recommendation, Claire and Paul, and anybody else who happens to be listening to this conversation, and that is Quip. Quip. Love it. I love my Quip. I use it to brush my teeth. Some people use their Quip to chew gum. And some people use their Quip to floss. And Mm -hmm. some people use their Quip to mouthwash. Whoa. That's right. Quip has all your dental care needs all in one company with a product line that is quite spiffy looking. Yeah. And you know, gum is really the unsung hero when it comes to better oral health. I've said it before. I'll (laughs) say it again. The American Dental Association recommends chewing sugar-free gum for 20 minutes after meals. Huh. I have not said that before, but I probably will say it again because I learned something there. I thought you were going to remind everyone to call gum chewy bits. That is important. Thank you, Ross, for raising awareness. Taking care of your teeth is important. That's why you have a whole separate type of doctor just to look at your teeth. That's right. They're the only bones that are supposed to be protruding out from our bodies. They're kind of crazy. Teeth are crazy. If you have any other bones protruding from your body, you should go to an emergency room probably. Correct. But if it's teeth, you don't need to go. And you know what? I just saw my dentist personally. Yeah. This last time he looked at my teeth and he said, you grind so much. A beautiful girl like you shouldn't have stress. Okay. (laughs) Is he 80 or something? No, he's like, he's probably 50. Yeah. Anyway, he and I are in love. So in addition to Chewy Bit Packs, Quip also delivers fresh brush heads, floss, and toothpaste refills. What more could you need out of a relationship with a dental care company? So I'm sure you're chomping at the bit. How do I find what Carrie and Ross are talking about? All you have to do is go to getquip.com slash oh no. Right now, you can get a free plastic dispenser with any refill plan. That's a free F-R-E-E, dispenser, at getquip.com slash oh no, O-H-N-O. That's G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash O-H-N-O. You can also find the Quip electric toothbrush, refillable floss, and more in the oral care aisle of your local Walmart. Quip, the good habits company. And while we're talking about good deals... I've got an idea for you, Carrie, on how to get good deals all the time everywhere when you're doing online shopping. Okay, I'm listening. We all shop online, and we've all seen that promo code field taunt us at checkout. It's just sitting there saying, you could be saving money here, but now you don't know what it is. So you're like, what code do I need? Uh, you check your emails, you're trying to search online. Or you're just typing in things half off, 50 <laughs> off free ship free shipping 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 20 spring 20 i know i can hack this with social engineering uh yeah or like you found out about a code but it's not working anymore i i know that feeling and you know that feeling well 
thanks to Honey. Manually searching for coupon codes is a thing of the past. That's right. Honey is the free shopping tool that scours the internet for promo codes and applies the best one it finds to your cart. That sounds pretty good. And when you check out, the Honey button drops down. All you have to do is click Apply Coupons. And if Honey finds a working coupon, Honey... You'll watch those prices drop. And it's something that you kind of set it and forget it. You like you install it. It's there. And I'll get to a shopping cart. And even before I can look at that field and think about it, Honey pops up and says, hey, want me to check? I see, you know, 10 potential options. And so you say, yeah, try it out. And so sometimes it'll say you've already got the best deal or Sometimes it'll say, hey, we just applied like $5 off or you just saved 10% off your order. You're like, thanks, honey. And then my wife walks by and she's like, you're welcome. (laughs) Even though you don't really use pet pet names. names She's my strawberry now. (laughs) So if you don't already have honey, you could be straight up missing out on free savings. It's free. It installs in a few seconds. What is wrong with you? And by getting it, you'll be doing yourself a solid and supporting this podcast. Get Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash oh no. That's joinhoney.com slash oh no. And back to Paul and Claire. I was wondering if maybe you could explain a little bit. uh, You talked about emergency use authorization versus like full FDA approval. I think a lot of people worry about that. Oh, this hasn't been approved. Can you talk a bit about that process? Right. So typically on the FDA vaccine advisory committee, when we review a vaccine, it's because the company has submitted a biologics license application and then the product gets licensed or it doesn't. That's not here. Here what happens is it's it's approval through emergency use authorization, which frankly is, is the equivalent of a permission to distribute an investigational new drug. That, that's really the equivalent of what that is. Here's what I would say. I, I think that when people hear that, they, they, when they hear emergency use authorization, they think hydroxychloroquine, right? Wasn't mm-hmm. that approved through emergency use authorization? Didn't that like not work at all in terms of either preventing or treating the disease? Yes, both those things are true. Mm-hmm. Approved through EUA, which it never should have been. And then, then it didn't work in any manner. And I'm sure it cost, it was, in fact, it caused about 10% of people who got that drug had cardiac arrhythmias, heart arrhythmias, and at some of which were fatal. So what a waste that was. But with vaccines, you know, these are vaccines, hydroxychloroquine was given to people who were sick. Vaccines were given to healthy people, including healthy young people. I mean, so you want to hold them to a higher standard. You want to make sure they work. Here's, here's what I would say. The, the difference in terms of emergency use authorization versus licensure are, there's three things to look at. One is the size of the trial. So, you know, Pfizer's was a 44,000 person trial, Moderna's 30,000. That's the size of any typical adult or pediatric vaccine trial. So it wasn't the size of the trial that was different. Um, length of follow-up for safety is no different than any vaccine trial, two months after the last dose. Because again, usually if it's going to be a problem, it'll occur within six weeks. The difference was length of time during which you knew it was effective. You knew that these vaccines were effective for a few months. That's all you knew. You didn't know whether it was effective for a year or two years or three years. On the other hand, you weren't going to do a three or four year study when 500,000 people died last year to see whether it works for a few years. You were just going to assume that it was going to last longer. That was the only difference. These, my understanding from Janet Woodcock, who's the current FDA commissioner, was that they now are saying you have to, you have to show efficacy, high efficacy for at least six months. Mm-hmm. And with that, you can get a license. So my sense is these companies are probably going to come back for licensure in the summer. Okay. That was my next question. You talked briefly about the the pause uh, around the Johnson & Johnson vaccine because of the recent blood clot issues in the news. I was wondering if maybe you could revisit that just for a moment and talk about whether you thought that was a good idea to pause that vaccine. How can I put this? So if this were the first vaccine that was available, 
it would still be being used. I mean, you, you, because you have on the one hand, as far as we've defined it, a one in a million risk of having cerebral venous sinus thrombosis, which is not trivial. And I think it is real. I think this one in a million risk is not coincidence. I think it is. It's a, I think it's a class effect. Uh, you know, the AstraZeneca vaccine is a similar kind of vaccine. Both of them are so-called viral vector vaccines, meaning replication defective adenoviruses. In the case of the Johnson Johnson, it's human adenovirus type 26. In the case of uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine, it's a simian adenovirus. And, and certainly UK, Europe has experienced the same thing at a somewhat higher rate. I mean, it, it depends on, on which group you read, but let, let's assume that the UK data, since they have the most data, the, the, the United Kingdom itself has given about 23 million doses of that vaccine. It looks like this effect occurs in one per 250,000 people, roughly. Um, so, so I think were that the first vaccine out there, you would hear, hear yes, it's real, yes, it's, it's bad, but it is extremely rare. And you are much, much more likely to benefit from that vaccine, knowing that one in 500 people die from this virus, than be hurt by this vaccine. That would be the story you heard. But it's not the first vaccine. It's a third vaccine. And you have two other vaccines out there that don't do this. So I think what, what, uh, what you hear now, and I think if I hear this phrase one more time, I'm going to jump out this window, what you hear is the phrase abundance of caution. Okay, so here's the way I see that. It, it's, so what we're evoking is the precautionary principle, which is to say you exercise caution to avoid harm. And, and since we do have two other vaccines, you could argue that's what we're doing. But here's how this might not be the precautionary principle is if there are people, there are advantages to the Johnson Johnson vaccine. It's a one dose vaccine. It's also refrigerator stable for months. I mean, if you compare that to, for example, the Pfizer vaccine has to be shipped and stored on dry ice, something we have no experience with in this country, and it has a five-day life in the refrigerator. Uh, the Moderna vaccine is shipped and stored at, at freezer temperature and has a one-month life in the refrigerator. Johnson Johnson vaccine is shipped and stored at refrigerator temperature and, has, is, and is refrigerator stable for months and months. So there may be some people, one who just want to get vaccine, one vaccine, who frankly are unlikely to get that second dose because they're homebound, because they're a transient population, whatever. There may be people who are in the rural areas who are, it's much easier to give a refrigerator stable vaccine than to give these other vaccines. Mm -hmm. so, so I would say that we, we have not done harm as long as we didn't hurt, as long as the same number of people who are going to get the vaccine still get the vaccine. But if there are people now who don't get the vaccine because they really wanted that Johnson Johnson vaccine or don't get the vaccine because they're just generally scared of vaccines, um, then we've done harm. And that's not the precautionary principle. So that's what worries me. I guess if, 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 uh, if I had, if it could have played out the way I would have liked to have seen it played out, I, what I like to have seen it played out is to say, look, this was a problem that, that I think was seen rarely with the AstraZeneca vaccine. There's a similar vaccine seems to be happening here. And to trust the American public to be able to assess risk, to say mm -hmm. it's a very rare risk. Know that there are other vaccines that don't appear to have this risk. Know that, that this is a one. I mean, there are advantages, disadvantages to this vaccine. And then, you know, let people decide to the extent they can. But I, I do really do fear this is uh, in, a, in a more rational world a world in which we don't live. But in a more rational world, people would say, look how carefully they're, they're looking. If they let us know about a one in a million risk, that makes me feel better about these other vaccines because mm -hmm. they would presumably let us know that too. But I think people just generally get scared because people are, you know, they're very easily scared. You know, you're, you're taking somebody, you're injecting them with a biological. That's just in, inherently scary. And people don't understand it. Uh, and you can understand why they wouldn't understand it. And it's just, so it's very easy to appeal to the sense of fear when you inject somebody with a biological yeah. and make them fear that they would become Spider-Man. Although that was, that was a joke. So just so we're clear that, that you can't become Spider-Man. Oh, you have man. to be bitten by a radioactive spider, all right? <laughs> 
Well, Claire, how are you feeling now after speaking to Dr. Afo with your questions? I think I'm feeling better. I wasn't totally clear on your answer to my first question. You know, so what I walked away with was that you have no concerns about effects from a vaccine showing up years later that didn't show up in the short term. But I wasn't sure that I walked away clear on whether vaccines that were attempted to be developed for earlier coronaviruses, whether those did end up with something like two years later or three years later. I mean, it sounds like the answer is no. Right. No, the thing you, I thought you were alluding to, and maybe not, was a so-called antibody-dependent enhancement. And let me explain that a little better, because I, I don't think I did explain it. Dengue is a perfect example of that. Dengue is a common infection in the, in the world, not in the United States, but in the world. Um, it's a virus that has four different types. When you're infected again with type 1, you make antibodies that neutralize type 1. But you also make antibodies that bind to, but don't neutralize the other three types. Mm-hmm. When you're then infected with the, the second type, you've made antibodies that bind to that virus because of the first infection. And what those antibodies do, because they don't neutralize the virus, they just bind to it. And they actually serve as a way, a sort of Trojan horse, to bring the virus into cells. So that those antibodies actually enhance infection. That's what happens with, with dengue. Um, that's, that was the problem with the dengue vaccine. I mean, the dang, dang, so-called dengvaxia actually caused that problem. So it was just limited to people who'd already been uh, infected, really, before you got this. It's a long story, but suffice to say that that was the dengvaxia story. I think there's another vaccine that's being made by Takeda, which gets around that problem. But um, so that can be a problem. And I think it's scary. It was, and it's not the first time. I mean, when, when, uh, when researchers made a respiratory syncytial virus vaccine in the 1960s, um, they made it by taking the virus and killing it. And that when people got babies, children got that vaccine and then were exposed to the natural virus, they actually did worse. Same thing with the measles vaccine. The first measles vaccine, one of the first measles vaccines was a whole killed viral vaccine. That was on the market for a couple of years until it too was clearly shown to cause this problem. But it wasn't a long-term problem. It was there early on. It's just people didn't appreciate it. How early is early on? Like how quickly... Within immediate, I mean, so immediately when you would be infected with that virus, you would see that problem. So I think Claire's remaining area of concern is with these first two COVID vaccines, the ones that may have provoked a similar response. How quick did you see that response? Very quickly. Like within within weeks. Yeah, the, the minute you were confronted with, well, remember it was it was really largely preclinical, meaning I mean experimental animals. Right. So I guess then another related question would be, what are the odds that we see another version of coronavirus come, a new mutation that is aided by those initial vaccines and it gets kind of a similar boost as Dengue 2 does? Right. So I think meaning meaning the next pandemic is that right. next coronavirus pandemic. No, I, th- I think the good news is it was predicted by very good animal model studies, non-human primate studies. So I, I think that we need to do that. We would need to do that to prove that. And it was proven, I think, with this, because people were worried about the same thing I think Claire was worried about, which is this antibody-dependent enhancement problem. But it wasn't seen preclinically, and it wasn't it hasn't been seen in people. So, so one other question I wanted to ask for people like Claire, I, I was really interested to know, because it's, it's kind of rare to find someone who hasn't had any vaccines. Should we expect someone without any previous vaccines to have some kind of different response in their bodies to a vaccine? Are they somehow aware of each other's existence? No, no. I mean, Claire's, Claire's 
Mars uh, lived in this on the planet Earth. Uh, I'm sure she's been ex- exposed to a lot of different you viruses. Don't know that. She's made a good. <laughs> so she's good. Okay. That was not a question that would have occurred to me, Ross. <laughs> I, I was wondering, like, she's got, Claire's got a different body than I do. Sure. Um, okay. So also, so the information sharing doesn't just go one way. Claire, since you represent this population of people who are smart and informed and science literate, but, you know, just still have a bit of heebie-jeebies about vaccines, what advice would you give uh, Dr. Offit for when he's talking to people in your position? I don't know that I have any particular advice that you wouldn't have already heard. I really appreciate, you know, what you shared today. And, you know, I appreciated the level of detail and also like acknowledgement of here are things that have gone wrong with vaccines or like acknowledging that it's not 0% risk, right? Like that the, that the risk reward calculation sort of matters. And in, and in this, pandemic with like so many people dying with these like really frightening long hauler experiences, you know, the risk reward calculation like feels very clear to me. But I feel like where a lot of communication goes wrong is just pretending that like, oh, no, there's zero risk. Like nothing is zero risk. There's always like a refrigeration situation went wrong and like people got injected with bad doses. Like, you know, I feel like if we could have more just like honest and full conversation about, yes, these are things that actually went wrong. Yes, these are things that are actually bad. Then it makes it more credible when someone says, no, that's actually not a real risk or that's not something that actually happened. You know, here's where we think this rumor came from or like, no, that's entirely made up. Well, no, that's good to hear. I mean, I think, um, I guess I I think those who are hesitant about vaccine as the euphemism we use is hesitancy. I, I think, you you fall into to me the first category, which which is the good category. It means skeptical, meaning I, I show me the data, and and if you show me the data and you present those data in a clear, compelling, logical way, in which I can understand, and which you acknowledge my reasonable fears, then I'm convincible. But see, then there's sort of the other group who I would call not a skeptic, but rather a cynic. They they just don't believe anything you have to say. They believe the government's lying to them, that the pharmaceutical industry is lying to them, that the medical community is lying to them. And it doesn't matter what you say. I mean, the Neil deGrasse Tyson line that I like is, you know, if people don't use reason or logic to to reach a certain conclusion, then reason and logic is not going to talk them out of it. And, and that, that's very frustrating for me. I mean, I just, I think that, that, I mean, if you use the example of, you know, the, the fear that was created by Andrew Wakefield when he said, you know, claimed falsely that MMR vaccine caused autism. I mean, you could argue that, that from a parent's standpoint, my child was fine. They got this vaccine. Now they're not fine. Could the vaccine have done it? Fair question. Mm-hmm. The good news is it's an answerable question. And it's been answered now in roughly 18 studies done in seven different countries on three different continents, costing hundreds of millions of dollars, involving <laughs> hundreds of research. The answer is clear. And so when people still don't believe it, then, then you just you just throw your hands up in the air. I mean, what can you do at this point? It's just, Yeah, because at that point, you're dealing with with folks like any any sort of fear or argument that is based in there is an all powerful unidentifiable group of people (laughs) that is controlling all of the information that comes out, that is compelling the population to behave in a particular way. Like that's not a falsifiable claim, right? Like they're all powerful, they can't be stopped and we aren't quite sure who they are, but it probably involves the queen of England. Like there's, you know, (laughs) I I agree. Like there's, there's nowhere to go from there. 
I love that uh, we've been able to have this conversation about many different aspects of these vaccines and not have to mention 5G or microchips or anything like that. And now I just did. Oops. <laughs> if I could throw in one additional question that I hear coming up a lot, it's about the booster coming. Do you see that we might need a booster for these vaccines within the next year or so? And how should people feel about that? Yes, yeah, so there would be two reasons. The Pfizer CEO recently said something I wish he had. He said, you know, we're going to need a booster uh, every year. Really? Based on what data? I mean, we don't have those data yet. It's, it's, I am encouraged by the fact that the, the second dose of at least mRNA-containing vaccines, really the first dose of the Johnson Johnson vaccine, induce cellular immunity. That usually presages longer-lived immunity. I'm not talking decades, but I, I'm optimistic that the, I mean, I was vaccinated in January. I'm optimistic that my vaccine will carry me through at least two or three years. I, I, I think that's likely. Um, a, it's, it's not a short incubation. It's not a long incubation period disease, but it's not a really short incubation period disease like flu or, or rotavirus. It's six days. So, so if I can have immunological memory, which I, I'd like to believe I have, given the symptoms I suffered with that second dose, that, that I think that's going to carry me through you know, a few years. So, so, so that would be one reason. The immunity is short-lived. I don't think that's going to be so such that you require a yearly vaccine. Maybe it's every few years, but because this virus is going to be with us for decades, this isn't going anywhere. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it, we can control this the spread of this virus. We're not going to eliminate this. It's not measles or, or rubella, German measles, which you can eliminate for a number of reasons. You can't. You're not going to eliminate this quickly. The, the, the second reason would be that a variant emerges that is resistant to immunity induced by natural infection immunization, meaning completely resistant, meaning you're still hospitalized, you're still killed by the virus. Then you're talking about not a booster dose, but a second generation vaccine. Okay. It would be nightmarish. I hope that hasn't happened yet. Hopefully it doesn't happen. Well, thank you so much. And Claire, any, any other lingering questions or Carrie? No, thank you, Dr. Offit. I really appreciate your time. And I know that this interview is speaking to many millions of folks that listen to OnRack, but I feel like I got this privilege of getting like <laughs> a vaccine expert to just be here to answer my own personal questions and concerns. <laughs> so, um, I really appreciate your time and all the work you do. Thank you. Well, they paid me a fortune to do it. So <laughs> that's why I did it. Uh, yeah, this is really cool for us, too. It's really awesome being able to talk to you, Dr. Offit. So thank you for taking the time. My, my pleasure. Happy to do it. Yeah. And thank you for protecting the world and being part of the Illuminati and keeping everything <laughs> running. And, and using uh, Bill Gates' money. <laughs> yes. Putting 5G into your own cells. Oh, no. I'll do it. I really appreciate it. I've understood this interview completely. Thank you so much. Sure. My pleasure. <laughs> Our friendly nice. neighborhood virologist. Thanks again. All right. Take care, guys. Stay Bye. safe. You too. You want to stay on, Claire? Uh, yeah. Michael, did you get all your questions answered too? That was pretty good. Michael. Hey. <laughs> oh, Claire's boyfriend, Michael. Hello. I saw you consulting Michael off camera. So that's good to know, Michael. If you had any questions, you could have inserted them. Well, I perked up when he mentioned Spider-Man. So no. <laughs> <laughs> But also you had, we had both, like every time we watched the news, there would be someone who would be on that's like, even if you've had it and you had the antibodies, like you still need to get vaccinated. And we both sit on the couch going, why? Like, what? Mm. explain that, explain why. And like, they never do. Mm. So that was one of our joint questions, which oh, nice. I thought he answered nicely, which was like, no, this is about, this is about simplicity in messaging and getting doses out without having to do extra testing rather than your antibodies, quote unquote, from the wild. Right. Which totally makes sense and is totally reasonable. So yeah, no qualms there. Fantastic. Um, how are you feeling right now, Claire? I feel better. Better. 
that's all we can ask for is better. I know a lot of those answers were very quick. And I was thinking, well, if I was Claire, I'd want to listen back to this answer on, you know, half speed, you know, because he was <laughs> he was putting a lot of data in there very quickly. Indeed. Yeah, he was certainly like throwing out a lot of information. And I was using my using all of my listening skills to really try to like follow what what he was saying, especially in, in his first answer to my mm. to my first question. Yeah, they did put out a Twitter call saying, if you're vaccine accustomed, what questions do you have for someone who's vaccine hesitant and and the reverse? And I would say this is going to really shock you, Claire, but the vast majority of my Twitter followers, it turns out, have had vaccines. And so <laughs> <laughs> so they mostly had questions for someone who hasn't yet and is still struggling. And I would say the heart of most of them was what can we do? What can the friends of people in this position do to make them feel safer and more ready to take a vaccine? What would you say to those people? I mean, I, I guess it's sort of the same thing that I said to Dr. Offit, which is, I don't think anyone wants to be, I don't know if like convinced is the right word, right? But like, I, I think, so here's the thing, like, I think this vaccine falls into this really interesting, like overlapping category of personal choice and social responsibility, mm. right? Like that it is both your own medical decision for yourself and it has implications for the health and safety of the people around you and society at large. And, and so I think that's like, that's a really difficult space to, to try to parse, right? That I don't want, I mean, like nobody likes people who are not their doctor coming into their space and being like, let me tell you about the medical decision that you should make for yourself. Right? Yeah. When sure. you think mm -hmm. about people dealing with, you know, any sort of illness to have friends and family around them that are like, this is what you should do with your cancer. No, this is what you should do with your cancer. Like, mm. is a really exhausting. Yeah. All those voices alone kind yeah. of a thing, right? Like not your business. But this is arguably, yes, it is your business because it's also like right. there are implications for the health and safety of our entire planet of, of human beings. I've been really annoyed that like it is not enough for people for me to say like I will be eligible on April 15th and that's when I'm going to get the vaccine. That's just been like exhausting for me mm. that I don't know. It's and, and I can't say that people have been like, overly pushy or anything but it's just text messages emails mentions on phone calls here's this mm -hmm. place where you can go get the vaccine they right. like 500 doses and they're there for three hours and like go do it right now right yeah, there's this inequality where everybody has you in their mind. They associate Claire with, oh, well, Claire's never been vaccinated. So any information I have about the vaccine, mm. I should funnel her way. Well, and I mean, I would also say, like, you assume people know that about me. Like, growing up, it was <laughs> very, it was very clear. Like, you're not supposed to talk about this. You're not supposed to talk Because this sort of thing happens. No, because, like, people don't agree with this position. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean. So it it'll was, turn into a debate. People will think you're unsafe. Mm. Like it just, it was, it was like talking about it on this podcast or like mentioning it, you know, like I've never been vaccinated feels like a, it's a really fraught. Yeah. It's like, it's not, it does not feel like a 
a safe thing to discuss. It's not right? a neutral mm-hmm. piece of information. It, it invites conversation that you don't necessarily want no, with everybody. No, it comes everybody. with judgment. Ross, it's not about conversation. It comes oh. with judgment, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, okay. People don't think you're safe. People don't think you're smart. So, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. I mean, like... <laughs> yeah. You know, it's yeah. reminding me of the conversations around, this is uh, obviously your position is nothing like addiction, but as far as the advice for the family members, the loved ones, like when someone has a, an addiction or something like that, the advice is always don't take away their agency. Don't put them in a position where the only thing they can do to please you is follow all your commands because then that's not sustainable. Now you're going to have to be their parent, you know, mm. instead you want to build up their sense of agency and let them make decisions that sometimes are going to feel pretty random to you or aren't going to make sense to you. And it seems kind of similar here where it's like, if you want to get the vaccine in June, which would seem random to me, but would be fine, you know, to go like, okay, you know, I'd rather she got it in April, but she's getting it in June. And that's great. And that's two months, you know, um, and accept like the other person's agency in the situation and give them as much room as you can to exercise that agency. Yeah. I mean, you know, I was, I was talking to to someone about this recently who's like, the only other person I know of who is in this particular camp of just kind of like, I'm just not ready quite yet kind mm. of a thing. Yeah. Because I, I, I mean, like, I definitely thought I was like, well, I'll have the summer. I sort of had in mind, I'm not old enough. I don't have underlying health conditions. I work from home. I'm not an essential worker. I will be at the end of the line Mm -hmm. and the end of the line is going to be like August or Mm -hmm. September. Like that was, that was kind of like the timeframe in my head. Yeah. We had predictions earlier this year that we know we stated for when we thought we'd get the vaccine. I didn't think I would until July. Yeah. And it's like, it's amazing. They've done the rollout as quickly as, as they have. And, you know, thank you current administration for being competent. But, you know, I was talking, talking to this person who had kind of had had sort of a similar time frame in her head. And this is someone who's like worked in the medical field in the past and is very smart. And like all of her, her friends and family, her fiance, like everyone's gotten the vaccine and is like really pressuring her to get the vaccine. Mm -hmm. And she's like, I will. And I also don't need to yet right? Like I work from home. I just want to wait and see. Like, I just want to, I just want to see how things Mm -hmm. keep playing out and it's uncomfortable. I don't feel like I can, for the folks who I know are like in the process of being vaccinated or like, you know, they've they've done all of that work of like, I'm going to get front of the line and get the vaccine, get it for me. You know, um, for them, you know, it's just like, I'm going to, I'm going to get it when I have the opportunity. I'm going to get it when I'm eligible. And then for those who I know, like are not getting the vaccine, we don't, I don't, I don't talk about it. Mm, <laughs> right. Not a point of conversation. Right. right. There's so many different factors involved here. And as, as you've been talking, I've just been thinking of more and more dials when it comes to just individual uh, personality 
and communication. If, if all of us had in our heads what Dr. Paul Offit does, I, I think this would be just a very maybe simple calculation, but that's not the world we live in and it never will be. You were talking also about how important it is to have a deliberated conversation where you can actually unpack relative risks. And there's no billboard way to communicate that. There's no bumper sticker way or like one sentence phrase that can communicate that to people. So I I think what's coming to me overall from this conversation is that we all need to be careful in how we approach these conversations and whether we approach these conversations. That's also a switch that you can turn, whether you have this or not, with people in our lives. And we can do so effectively or ineffectively. And I hope this podcast becomes something that might be one of those useful tools that people could use to say, hey, well, why don't you listen to this conversation and see that relative risk unpack? When I worked at the James Randi Educational Foundation, we sponsored some research on speaking to people who have vaccine concerns. And the finding was exactly what Claire has articulated, which is that people who are accustomed to vaccines or vaccine champions tend to think, if I talk about any risk, then anyone who hasn't heard about those risks is now going to add it to their mental bank of potential problems that I'm actually going to work against people getting the vaccine. Mm -hmm. But the finding was the opposite, that validating people's fears, saying like, yeah, oh, what you're describing could absolutely happen, you know, in one out of 3 million cases. However, if you get the virus we're vaccinating against, your odds of the same thing are much greater. You know, having those mathematical conversations where then they felt respected, they felt heard, they felt like they might be telling you something you didn't know can be is way is way more powerful in most cases. And yet in this complicated world we live in, a lot of people will take that piece of information, take it out of context, weaponize it and use it for fear mongering without that unpacking of relative risks. Right. And you can once we have talked to everybody who's in that movable category, we can go to those unmovables. But I think that'll take all of our lives to get through that first category of people. Well, Claire, thank you so much for letting us come along on this journey of yours and letting this be part of a podcast conversation for all of our listeners. That's a really admirable thing to do. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for inviting me on, guys. And, uh, you know, thanks for giving me access to Dr. Offit, which Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have had otherwise. Uh, Yeah, fun for us to talk to him, too. Well, we'll want to follow up with you. Keep us up to date how it goes. Yeah, I'll let you know how it goes. Thanks. I see Michael also hovering in the background there. Michael, thank you for your contributions. Behind every great woman is a man standing behind her with his hand on her shoulder. I have one final question for Claire (laughs) that I thought might be interesting. Okay. Um, (gasps) He's getting out a ring. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear God. Um, I know this conversation was primarily focused specifically on the COVID vaccinations, but of course, much of the content is relevant to vaccines in general. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, kind of based specifically just on this conversation today, do you feel that you're any more or less likely to seek out kind of the standard gamut of, of vaccinations like measles, hmm. mumps, rubella, and so forth at some point in the unspecified future? Uh, no, I don't think I am more or less likely. Uh, this is definitely like, a source of cognitive dissonance for Mm. me of like, yep, I need to go get those vaccines because it is a responsible thing to do as part of a broader society. And I have not done it. You know, as, as we have discussed, I am someone who like does not engage with medical services 
hardly at all. I don't have any prescriptions. I don't like, I'm just like not in the spaces where the option to get that is like even offered to me or just so it is something where like I would have to go out of my way to do it. Each one would require its own kind of separate deliberation process. No, no, I don't think so. Just like, it's just a matter of, I'd have to be like engaged with a doctor and say, I've never had any of my vaccines before. How do I get all of Mm -hmm. those like childhood vaccines or like, I, I don't know, maybe there is a question of like, are there, are there any that I just shouldn't even bother getting? Like, yeah, right? Yeah. Box, right? like another valid question. And I'm just like, I don't have a primary care doctor. I don't do annual checkups. Like yeah. there, I would have to like actively set up an opportunity to have that, that discussion. Well, since you have Kaiser and I have Kaiser, I can tell you, you do have a GP. You just apparently don't know who they are, but uh, Kaiser oh, has yeah. assigned yes, you. Yes, I do. I mean, I've I have selected a person mm-hmm. because they have you know, a name to set up Kaiser. I've never met that person. <laughs> sure, <laughs> sure. Well, that's down the road. Um, let's see how this first one goes. Claire's nodding. She's nodding. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much, Claire. This has uh, been, I think, very educational for people on all sides of this conversation. And as Ross said, I think it, it is vulnerable. And it also is really good for people to hear from someone who's smart and articulate and informed and in this position, because so often mm-hmm. we just hear from people on very extreme ends of the spectrum. So thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Good to talk to you. Always. Well, thank you again so much to both Claire and Dr. Paul Offit for sharing with us on the show. Yeah, absolutely. What a wonderful conversation. I mentioned in that conversation a study about talking to people with vaccine concerns. It was a survey study put together by the James Randi Educational Foundation and Women Thinking, Inc., and it's called Immunization, Myths, Misconceptions, and Misinformation. And if you want to read that, you can go to tinyurl.com slash vaxtalk, V-A-X-T-A-L-K. Excellent. And Dr. Offit has a new book coming out in September. It's called You Bet Your Life, From Blood Transfusions to Mass Vaccination, The Long and Risky History of Medical Innovation. Uh, So that might be some helpful additional supplemental reading. And of course, Dr. Offit has other books that you may be interested in as well. And you can actually pre-order his book at bookshop.org slash shop slash oh no. Oh my goodness. I don't know. That's where I would pre-order it personally if it were me. And you would support our show and also independent booksellers at the same time by doing that? And Dr. Paul Offit. What? That's supporting a lot of good causes. (laughs) In fact, I've already done it, pre-ordered it. Oh, fantastic. Love it. Yep. I'm pretty cool. And as I'm saying this, and this this could change, of course, but right now, at least, it is cheaper at bookshop.org than at amazon.com. That is rare. That is rare and good. If you want to follow Dr. Offit... In a very non-creepy way. ...on Twitter... As I was about to say the name of his account, I saw that there is a parody account painting him as a evil, sinister vaccine cool. tyrant. But his <laughs> real account is Dr. Paul Offit, D R P A U L 
O-F-F-I-T. And to that other guy, I say, get off it. Well, that's it for our show. Our theme music is by Brian Keith Dalton. Our administrative manager is Ian Kramer. You can support us at MaximumFun.org slash join. That's how you become part of the Maximum Fun family and thus part of our family. I don't know if that makes you cousins or what, but you're part of the family and you support us. Wait, if they're family, Mm -hmm. then why are there still monkeys? We need to get another expert to answer that one. Yeah. (laughs) Also, if you want to follow Claire on social media, too bad. She doesn't have any public accounts. Eat shit. Uh, yeah, yeah, do that. You could also support us by leaving a positive review anywhere you get the podcast that allows you to leave reviews. It doesn't even have to be, you know, you could write a lovely sonnet or even a limerick mm-hmm. on our behalf or a haiku, or you could mm-hmm. just give a five-star review. That would mean a lot and it would help other people find us. You can also follow us on social media at facebook.com slash onrack, O-N-R-A-C, or on Twitter at Podcast. And remember, honestly, your chance is better of of becoming Spider-Man after you've gotten this vaccine. But remember, just so we never leave the science, you become Spider-Man when you're bitten by a radioactive spider. Spider-Man, Spider-Man, does whatever a spider can. Spins a web any size, catches seeds just like flies. Look out, here comes a Spider-Man. Is he strong? Listen, bud. He's got radioactive blood. Can he swing from a thread? Take a look overhead. Hey there, there goes a fireman. In the chill of night, at the scene of a crime, like a streak of light, he arrives just in time. Spider-Man, Spider-Man, friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. Welcome, fame, he's ignored. Action is his reward to him. Life is a great big day. Wherever there's a hang, you'll find a Spider-Man. Riddled with guilt over your TBR pile? Are you filled with shame about a book that you just can't seem to finish? Are you having regrets because grad school killed your love of reading? We're Reading Glasses, and we're here to help. I'm Mallory. And I'm Bria. Let us absolve you of all your reading guilt. Stuck on a book you don't like? We'll help you dump it. Can't figure out what to read next? We'll recommend something in your wheelhouse. Can't decide where to buy your books from? We'll point you in the right direction. No matter what you read or how you read it, We'll help you do it better. Green Glasses, every Thursday on Maximum Fun. Strange planets, curious technology, and a fantastic vision of the distant future. Featuring Martin Starr. So we're going on day 14. Shuttle still hasn't come. Aparna Nancherla. The security system provides you with emotional security. You do the rest. Echo Kellum. Can you disconnect me or not? Hurry Kondabolu. I'm staying. From Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Jeffrey McGiver. Could you play Cindy Lauper's Girls Just Want to Have Fun? It's The Outer Reach. Stories from Beyond. Now available for free at MaximumFun.org or anywhere you listen. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.